Alright, so take your Bibles please, open them to the book of Hebrews in the 6th chapter. We come again to this passage in Hebrews 6. If you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin reading again at verse 9. Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day, that you would help us see your truth and help us see your power, help us see the mercy that is given to us in Christ. But God, above and beyond all that, I pray that you would give us insight this day into your heart of compassion for us, that you remember us, and that you remember our frailty, that you remember our condition that you remember our weaknesses. That you remember, God, that we are nothing but dust. And that in that memory, you extend mercy and grace to us time and time again. God, help us see the blessings that are ours as your children. And help us understand that they are ours because of your greatness and not because of our good. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. How many of you feel worthy of the grace that's been bestowed to you in Christ? Good. I'm not talking to a bunch of heretics. We're not worthy. It is very plain that we're not worthy. But how many of you feel distinctly unworthy of the things that God has promised? So much so that your feelings of unworthiness get in the way of your love for Him, your desire for Him, your, your communion with Him, to where you feel like, I am so unworthy and so rotten to the core that I, I can't quite trust in what God has done. That can be a problem. And it can be a problem because while we understand what we are apart from Christ, oftentimes that understanding can cloud our understanding of what we are in Christ. That, that we truly have a difficult time believing that God actually loves us because we get hung up on the fact that we're not lovely, which is fine, but we don't have a clear enough view of who God is. To give us a perception that he has desired and designed and determined to set his love upon us. Never mind the fact that we're unworthy. And this can come out in a lot of different ways. It can come out in people doubting the love of God. It can come out in people doing their best to try and do an end run about what the scripture says. And try and somehow make themselves worthy. And so we develop these complicated systems of religious thought wherein our works save us. Um, it, it really messes with our minds when we don't hold this very comfortably. 
You are not worthy, but God loves you anyway. That's the truth. And that's the bottom of it. And, and as the writer of Hebrews has been hammering on the church in Jerusalem over the things that they have failed at, he has come back around to tell them, I'm confident of better things concerning you. I'm confident of the fact that God has set his love upon you. And then he gives them this idea. He says, I want you to know that God is not unfaithful. God is not unjust. So unjust that he would forget the work that you've done. Now, it's an interesting question and it's an interesting dilemma because, again, if you take it out of context and determine to not understand what's being said, he could almost be understood to be commending the salvation by works. That God remembers that you have done these works and that somehow these works are going to make you acceptable in the sight of God. And that's not the issue at all. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you need to rest in the love of God and you need to understand that God has promised that he himself, because he is faithful, will remember everything that you've done and will count it on a, on a manner of saying that he recognizes your weakness, he recognizes your frailty, he recognizes your inability, but that the things that you have sought to do for his glory have not escaped his notice. And that he remembers and that he rewards and that he will certainly give back to you that which is done for him. We, we live in a world where only the big things get noticed. We live in a world where only the, the things that are spectacular and only the things that are loud and brash. Every year, Hollywood gets together and puts on their finest clothes and breaks their arms, patting themselves on the back so that they can tell the world that they are good because they say they are. And we drink that stuff in. People sit down and watch those award shows, and they're, they're all oohed and awed over these things that have been done. And I remind you that by their great and powerful work, no lives have been changed. The world has not been altered for the good. And nobody has been aimed at Christ. <laughs> Their, their entire worldview hates God. And, and if we look at what they produce, it is detestable in the sight of God according to Scripture for the most part. And I bring that up only because it shows the contrast of how empty things that look big can take on the appearance of being valuable. They can take on the appearance of having worth. They can take on the appearance of having substance. While small things that look small in the eyes of man have true substance that God notices. Amen. Okay? So that's the idea that we need to be wrestling through. And this is the idea that we need to be looking at as we think about what it means that God remembers your work. That He is not unjust to forget. That He never loses track of anything that has been done for the sake of His name. Because in the end, God's powerful love is set upon us. And I want to start with the understanding that God knows all of your works. God knows everything. God is omniscient. Um, Luke chapter 8, verse 17 says, Nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. He sees everything. The word theos from the Greek means God. And the word theos, though, 
comes from the word fiestai, which means to see. So God means the one who sees. There is no such thing as a blind God. Amen? Even idols are given eyes, aren't they? Even when men invent gods, they make sure that they look like somebody who can see. We need to recognize that the God who is, sees everything. He sees what you do. He sees what you are. He knows who you are. His omniscience is inseparable from his omnipresence. The scripture affirms that there is no place that you can go to escape God. So even the things done in the secret places are known by God. Jesus commends to us, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you're giving. In other words, give in secret. And sometimes that can feel worrisome because if nobody knows, then how will I be rewarded? Now, I know we would never admit to such a thought, but acknowledge the truth of it. Who sees? God does. The God who is in the secret places. Look at me at Psalm 139. Psalm 139, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> o Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. We, we saw that modeled, by the way, in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in our reading from Mark this morning, didn't we? The scripture affirms that they didn't say anything out loud about their disbelief that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. They reasoned in their hearts. They were muttering in their minds. They were thinking to themselves, <clears throat> they may have had a scowl, but they didn't say anything. But Jesus, being God, put his finger right in the middle of what they were thinking in their hearts. Now, if I had been there and I had been a Pharisee and Jesus told me what I was thinking, that might give me pause. I hope it would. I hope that it would be something that would turn me to the truth of who He is. But the Scripture tells us that God knows our thoughts. He knows the things that are going on inside of us. You understand my thought far off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Now, how many of you have heard that hell is the place where God is not? What does the scripture say? He's there. Hell is the place where God is in unfiltered wrath. It is not an escape from God. And those who think they're going to go to hell to get away from God that they don't want to be around will find themselves sorely disappointed. Because God is there. And He is there in wrath. And He is there for all of eternity. The psalmist says, Lo, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. So not only does He know we're there, He's out in front of us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, and even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. 
but the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows for well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Yet your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Is there anything that God doesn't know about his people? Is there anything that God has not planned about his people? Is there any part of our lives that are exempt from his knowledge and his power and his control? Absolutely not. Everything that is going on in the world today is firmly held in the hand of God. And we need to rest in the fact that God knows us that intimately. It's a, it's a strange thing that we often have a hard time getting our head around this. We can recognize the sovereignty of God in controlling the world. And we can even wrestle through where we say, Lord, the events that are going on, I trust that you're governing them. But how difficult is it for us to recognize that God knows us so intimately that there is no part of us that he is not so familiar with that he has not fashioned to be exactly what it is at this moment for the sake of the glory that he is producing in us. This is a hard truth for us to get our heads around. It's a hard thing for us to understand. But he knows everything about us. And more than that, he knows why we do what we do. He understands our frailty. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our fears. He understands our distresses. He understands our dismay. He understands our passions. He understands our motivations. He understands everything that goes into the makeup of what drives us to do what we do because he is the one who, as we read in the psalm, fashioned us in the secret places. He is the one who knit us together. Body, soul, mind, preferences, all of it comes from his hand. All of it comes from him fashioning us to be exactly who he created us to be so that our lives would go in the path that he ordained for us. So much so that the scripture affirms that every single one of our days was ordained in God before any of them came to be. Everything is held in the hand of our God. And he knows everything about us. He knows our stubbornness and our rebellions. He knows our desire and our intentions. He understands every challenge that we face in the performance of our duty. And beloved, hear me. He is compassionate towards us when we fail. The scripture tells us that God has forgiven our sin. Your sin, the thing which makes you guilty, is gone. Now your actions remain. And the things that you do, they're still there. There are consequences that are connected to actions, natural and logical consequences, future consequences are consequences. But they are not punishment and they are not guilt. Your guilt has been removed. By the grace and the mercy of God. Which means you need never fear his presence. He knows you. So. Excuse me. Cough the rust. I've got a frog in my throat. I'm trying to not make it be too obvious. So. As. As we think about this. 
I want you to reflect in your hearts for just a moment. And I want you to be honest with yourself and ask the question, have there been times where your failure to do what you know God called you to do drove you from His presence? I think it's happened to all of us. It need not ever be that way. Because God already knows what's going on. First of all, He knows that you failed. When when Adam and Eve took of the fruit and they heard God walking in the garden and they hid themselves. And God walks through the garden saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? Do you think he didn't know? I mean, really? We, we brought Ivan a big box home the other day. Lester and I helped Kathy move a, a dryer into her house. And we brought the box home for Ivan to play in. It's just the perfect size for him. It's huge. But he can walk in it without having really to duck. He just kind of turns his head. And it's become this awesome game. He hides in his box and giggles. <laughs> Ivan, where are you? <laughs> Do I know where he is? Absolutely, I know where he is. There's no question whatsoever. Adam, where are you? Absolutely. Did, not only that, did God know what had happened? So why did he feel the need to come to Adam and say, what is this that you've done? Who told you you were naked? Did, did he not know that they'd eaten of the tree? Is God ignorant? No, he knew. Why the, why the conversation? Because Adam needed to have the conversation to come to an awareness of what had happened. Adam needed to have the conversation so that he would learn that grace is now a part of his life. Because immediately following that, God took their very poor coverings of fig leaves, which is about the worst thing you can cover yourself with, um, and he made for them an offering of lamb, I assume, because that's consistent with the rest of Scripture. The Bible tells us that God clothed them with skins. But there's a whole lot of things that go on underneath that simple statement. God made for them tunics of skin. How do you obtain skin to make a tunic? Something has to die. And in that moment, when God made for them a covering, death entered in physically into the world that had been created. Death had entered in spiritually already. Man was already separated. The question was part rhetorical, part evidentiary. Adam, where are you? You used to know my presence. You used to fellowship with me. Now there is something between us. Adam, I want you to understand that you are no longer a part of what I was or what you were with me. That's all part of the question. But immediately upon that awareness being taught to Adam, God himself intervened with grace and provided a cover. I want you to pay attention to who was making sure that the relationship was restored. Was it God or was it Adam? Because in that scenario, one of them was hiding, and one of them was looking. Adam wasn't searching for God. God was seeking out to restore his son. And beloved, this is the same dynamic that's at work in our lives when we mess up. 
God is always searching you out to restore you, to, to heal you, to make your life a vessel for grace. And in the midst of whatever it is that you fail at, I want you to understand that it becomes a vessel for grace in the hand of a sovereign God. It becomes a vessel of grace for you to lavish on the world as God shows his grace and mercy through your failings. So God has great compassion on you as you fail. He has great compassion on you when you do not succeed in the things that he has called you to do. And when you get it right by his grace and mercy, he remembers that as well, whether nobody else ever notices or not. This is a work of grace. This is a work of sovereign mercy. And in the end, he sees us and he knows why. He knows us personally and intimately. He knows you better than you know yourself, better than your parents ever knew you, better than your spouse knows you, better than your best friend knows you. He knows you. And beloved, hear this. If you were the only person in this room, God would be looking at you. You say, well, of course he would, because I'm the only person in the room. But if there were a billion people in this room, God would still be looking at you with the same intensity that he's looking at you now. He knows you. You are his child if you belong to Christ. You have been brought into the family of God, and that relationship is paramount. And he is never looking away from you. God never turns away from his children. He never forsakes us. He never desires that we were someplace else. Now, in the midst of this conversation, we look at the reality that it is God who has both authored and orchestrated that God is the great initiator in our salvation. God is the great initiator in our ongoing relationship with Him. God is the great initiator in our restoration. God is the great initiator in our everything. There's also the fact that God initiates in us the work that he creates for us to do. He is the one who remembers all of our works. Nothing is ever lost by God. Because he is the one who has ordained them. He is the one who has ordered them. How many of you can remember um, with clarity a moment from your childhood? All of us have a few that stand out. Try this. Take that one moment, that one shining bright spot that you know you will never forget until the day that you die. That thing, whatever it was, good or bad. Probably most of them were bad because they tend to imprint on our brain more powerfully than the good ones. But I want you to back up 12 hours from that moment and tell me if you can find it, the detail that's clear. I would wager you can. I would wager you go, there were 12 hours before. <laughs> that moment just exists as, as this bubble. It, this is this thing. It, it, it doesn't have a context. I remember the moment, but I don't remember anything else. You know God never thinks of us that way? He never loses the details. Nothing ever gets cloudy with time. Nothing is ever vague with him. There's no part where God goes, ah, let me think about that for a minute. I gotta get ah, you said this, and then I said, no, that's not right. That never happens. God holds all of it very clearly, very completely, very accurately. He knows everything that is. 
And he has ordained all things that are. And nothing is ever falsified. How many of our memories that we have, we, we remember through a little bit of a haze because we look a little better in the retelling if we fudge it just a little? I mean, come on. Anybody ever really catch fish quite as large as you tell me? And we look a little better when we fudge the details. But God never falsifies anything. He never muddies the water. First of all, because in his telling both of our failures and or successes, who's the hero? God is. Who deserves to be honored and exalted? God and so there is no need for him to muddy the water because God never looks anything other than glorious. God never looks anything other than perfect. God never looks anything other than the best of all possible things. And so when God reminds us of the working of grace, even though we might look at something which was painful or shameful or less than we wanted it to be, we can look at it and say, God, I recognize that your grace has been lavished on me even through that. So let's go back to the garden for just a moment. And let's think this through. Because there, there are two diverging realities as, as people look at the world and the world as we know it that settle on this point. Did God intend the fall when he created the world? Or did God respond to something that man did that broke his creation? <coughs> The scripture tells us that God intended all things, that he has ordered all things from before the foundation of eternity. Now, all things means all things. So what the scripture affirms for us is that God intended the fall. So if God intended the fall, we have to come up with some sort of a question and an answer for the question about why. And it comes back to this question of the presence of God's grace in the midst of our failures and the presence of God's grace in the midst of our triumphs. It really is two sides of the same coin. There is no distinction between the things that you get wrong and the things that you get right when your question is about the presence of grace. Amen? If grace is necessary for you to get anything right, and grace is necessary to redeem what you've gotten wrong. Is there any distinction about right or wrong when we're talking about grace? Not really. Grace exalts God. Grace makes much of him who is the author of grace. Grace exalts the king who came to earth and died in our place. It does nothing to exalt us except to make us his children purpose of grace in our life is to show us who God is and to reveal his character and reveal his nature, which brings us back to the question about why. What the scripture tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12 is that into the things of salvation, angels long to look. The angels that are in heaven that behold the face of God, that commune with him in the most vibrant, powerful way possible, in a, in a, it's, it's like you're in the same room with him, looking at him. They're that close all the time. And we think about that and say, they have the better share. 
They get to see God. They get to hear His voice. They get to participate in the worship of heaven. They're, they're there. They're worshiping. They're a part of it. What the Scripture tells us is that they long to look into the things of salvation, and that word look in means to experience. In other words, there's not an angel in heaven that wouldn't trade places with your sorry life and all of your failings and all of your ruin and all of your things that you're so sure you let God down about. There's not an angel in heaven that wouldn't, with full knowledge, trade places with you so that he gets to know what it is to have the grace of God lavished on him. You say, why the fall? Because apart from the fall, grace has no realm or scope. The fall made way for grace. And God's redeeming love, lavishing grace upon us, is so good that it's worth the chaos that comes with the fall. Now, I understand that for people who do not think biblically, that answer is a bit disturbing. So when a person out in the world asks me, well, if God's so good, why did all this bad stuff happen? I have to spend a lot of time setting up the answer because the, the short, sweet answer that God's love is so good that it makes it all worth it is going to be lost on them because they have no concept of who God is. But I hope, I pray, I desire with all that I am that I can say that to you. And you'll know at least something of what I'm trying to communicate. That God is that good. That whatever the thing that you wish was different in your life, you recognize God brought it because it's a vessel for grace that leads you to Him. And beloved, I want you to recognize the truth that I'm not speaking these things from an ivory tower. I've got my fair share of blackness in my soul and things that I've done and things that I regret and things that I wish I could undo. That, that idea of being a vessel of grace is compelling. And more than compelling, it is God-exalting. It's honoring to which is why the scripture can affirm to us that God is not unjust to forget your works because God is not unjust to forget anything. He is faithful to himself and it makes much of him when we are blessed with this memory, when we are blessed with his praise for things that we had nothing to do with. It makes much of him. Think about how Jesus interacted in Matthew 25 with, with his conversation with his disciples about the dividing point between the sheep and the goats. And we don't need to read the whole passage. We're familiar with it. But I want you to think about the story that Jesus gave. And really, he was giving them a statement about what was going to happen. He didn't say, it didn't sit like a parable. It's a teaching. And in that teaching, he says, when the Son of Man comes with all of his angels and he divides the sheep from the goats, he'll put the goats on his left and the sheep on his right, and he'll turn to his sheep and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servants, because I was hungry and you fed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was, I was in jail and you visited me, I was in the hospital and I was sick, you ministered to me. And they'll look at him and say, when? 
And Jesus answers and says to them, When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Now what I want to draw your attention to in this statement is the fact that the people who answer him and ask the question, when? They're not putting on. In other words, the works seemed to them to be nothing. They just were doing what God led them to do. An opportunity appeared in front of them, they picked it up, and they took it. It was a small thing. Well, Peggy was sick, and we took her soon. Of course we would do that. What's the big deal? You understand? What Jesus is telling them is, those things that I remember, that blessed me, that make much of the grace that has been translated into your life, they're things that are so ordinary and so natural to a changed heart that you didn't even notice you did them. Isn't that cool? Beloved, hear this. Our perspective when we judge our lives is broken. We're still stuck in Hollywood. We're still trying to pat ourselves in the back for the big things that have no meaning or context or value whatsoever and passing over the little things that are enormous with meaning. Because what God is doing in you is so profound and so true and so real and resonates so deeply in the core of who you are that you often don't even notice the change that's happened to you. In fact, you'll often look at your life and say, I don't see any evidence of Christ in me whatsoever. I must be going to hell. But hear this. The people around you see it. And more than that, God himself knows it. And he is not unfaithful to forget your works. He is not unfaithful to forget the times that you stepped into the gap and ministered unto the body of Christ and ministered to the saints and in doing so ministered to him whether you recognized you were doing it or not. It could be as easy as a kind word to somebody who's having a hard day. It could be as simple as giving somebody a ride. It could be as meaningless to you as a smile. You ever notice how uplifting it is when somebody looks at you and smiles instead of looks at you and scowls? <laughs> Beloved, God remembers. And he remembers the things that we don't even remember because it is consistent with his nature. Now, let me take and reverse that for just a minute and try and help with this just a little bit. Those little things that you do that maybe I brought to mind that, okay, yeah, we did that, I remember. When you were the recipient of it, was it ever small? When you received that mercy, when you received that kindness, when you received that thing, whatever it is, it's huge. Your mom is always faithful to write me a little note about once a month. I appreciate them so much. And I'm terrible because I need to write back and just say thank you. <laughs> but but it's, it's so uplifting, just, just the little note. 
it, it probably means nothing to her. It's, it's I, I don't mean that badly, but but it's it's certainly less to her than it is to me. It's cool. In the end, we need to recognize the fact that we don't see ourselves in the right way. We don't see ourselves in a way that is consistent with how God sees us. Because God has done what he has done to make much of himself through us. He's done what he's done to make much of himself in our lives. And he can do that when we get it right. And he can do that when we get it wrong. And we focus so much on the times that we mess it up that we think that God's not receiving any honor, but he's still receiving glory because you are a vessel of grace. You are a vessel of his love and you are a vessel of his hand in your life. And in the end, if God has ordered all things to be what they are and he has set in front of you the works that are prepared for you to do, and we'll read that passage in just a moment, would it not be unjust of him to not pay attention to the things that he ordained for you? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul writes this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there is the great distinction. You're not saved by your works. But he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only did God call you to life, you were dead in trespasses, you've been saved by faith, saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Not only has He called you to life, He has called you to the life that you live. He has prepared the circumstances of your life specifically so that you are placed in the path of good works that he has prepared for you to do. Now some of you are going to be thinking in your minds right now, well I certainly don't have very many opportunities for very big works. Time to wake up. You've obviously slept through the whole first half of the sermon. <laughs> the works don't have to be big to be precious in the sight of God. I want to say this again. God has prepared your life in such a way that the works that are in front of you to do are in front of you to do. It's His power that has ordained your life and created the circumstances that allow you to do what it allows you to do. That is by definition limiting, and it is by definition broadening. It means that your works do not have to be big to be precious in the sight of God. What they are, He has ordained for you. So He's not going to hold you accountable to do something that He has not put in front of you. He has gifted you for your service and He has ordained works for you according to His will and according to His purpose. 
and they are what is in front of you to do. And so hear this, please. It doesn't matter whether they are works that anybody else will ever notice, see, praise, applaud, or give credit for. What matters is that God himself has ordained them for you, and when you fulfill them according to his mercy, you are bringing praise and glory to the king. And he is not unjust to forget. And he will remember the works of service that you have done because he gave them to you to do. He provided them for you and provided the ability for you to fulfill them. It's his work in you. It's his work through you. It's his work for you. So the things that rise up in us whereby we look at our lives and say, I, I don't make a difference. All I do is this. All I do is that. All I do are these things that nobody notices and that don't make any difference at all. Understand that God is the one who has ordained those things for you. And in that ordaining, he has given them both value and he has given them worth. He has made them precious in His sight. And when you are faithful to do them, God is honored. And He will not forget. So it doesn't matter if you compare your life to somebody who's teaching millions of people and changing the face of the world. Because in the sight of God, those were the good things. That, and assuming that's a good thing. Let's, let's say it's somebody who's, you know, preaching the gospel and, and people are being saved and the world is being changed. You compare your life to Charles Spurgeon. It's easy because he's dead. <laughs> Ask yourself the question. Is your faithfulness in your sphere any less precious to God than Spurgeon's faithfulness in his? And the answer according to Scripture is no. Because God is the one who has prepared those works for them to do. God is the one who has made those circumstances for those lives to be laid out. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Maybe this will put a little clarity on it. 1 Corinthians 12, Acts 12. Paul says this. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we all were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. So what Paul is saying at the beginning here is whether you come from here or there, or have this or that, or are part of this group or that group, we are one body, one body only. Now, let me be very, very clear with you. This right here, this truth, is the death nail to racism in the church. Okay? There is no excuse for racism. Acts 17 tells us we are all made of one blood. Physically, we are exactly the same. The color of our skin makes no difference. Physically, we all come from the same root. We are all made of one blood. But it's doubly heretical and doubly damnable for the church to embrace racism. Because what the scripture says is that we have all been made one in Christ. So we came from one blood physically, but now we have been brought together as one family by the blood of Christ. 
And that changes everything. We have brothers and sisters that look worlds different than us, that speak languages we don't understand, that worship in ways that are strange to us, but they are our family in Christ. And they should be treated with the dignity and respect that belongs to our family in Christ. That's just an aside. That was free. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? And if all were one member, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Now I'm going to stop there. Because from there he goes on to the, to the outpouring of our care and outpouring of our need, and I don't have time to unpack all of that. We will talk about it. I want you to get the heart of what he's saying here. The eye and the ear are not the same. They're a part of the same body, but they're not the same thing. But they're both equally important. Okay? The eye and the ear... They're, they're both important. The head and the feet, they're both important. The knee and the elbow, they're both important. The thumb and the little toe, they're both important. And it doesn't matter whether you are a head or a foot, an elbow or a knee, a thumb or a little toe. If you are a part of the body, you are necessary to the body and you must be a part of the body and you deserve the same honor as a part of the body that the more exposed public parts get. And you could make the case that Paul argues that the parts that are less actually deserve more honor because of how God deals with how we cover our nakedness. That was the picture he was unpacking. Beloved hear me. That works in a local body and it works in the body universal. And you might look at your life and compare it to somebody who's making great waves out in the world for the sake of the kingdom and say, I'm not doing that, therefore I am nothing. And I recognize that temptation, but I want to tell you on the authority of Scripture that is a wrong way to think about it. Because it does not matter what they're doing. It matters that you do what's in front of you to do because your life is exactly the way God designed it to be. Your giftedness, your abilities, your opportunities come from His hand. And while you might forget them and think they are nothing, God never will. Amen. Amen? Amen. While you might look at your life and look at your offerings and feel like this doesn't matter to anybody, this doesn't matter, I'm, I'm just done, you need to recognize that's a sinful thought and it's something that you need to repent of. Because the things that you do matter. They may not matter to anybody outside of your little sphere, but they matter. And most importantly, they matter to God. They're things that He has placed in your life. 
for his own purpose and for his own glory. And they may not seem important to our eyes and they may not seem important to the world, but they are important to him. Matthew 10, 42 says, Whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So no matter how small your work is, God remembers and God will reward it. He is faithful to remember and faithful to hold. He will certainly bless and honor our labors no matter how small. Do not be discouraged because your works are not great or important in the eyes of men. Do not be discouraged because no man sees what you do. That's kind of how we should strive to do our works of service. The right hand, the left hand, that whole don't let them know what they're doing thing. Specific teaching was about giving, but it also applies here. Do not be discouraged because you feel unappreciated or unnoticed. Do not become discouraged in doing the good that God has placed in front of you. Look at Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to point something out for you here. Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he also will reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while we do it. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do all the good. Do all the good that's in front of you. Do not worry about the fact that you're not doing the good that's in front of somebody else. See how silly that sounds? I didn't do that thing that was in front of them. It was theirs to do. Don't waste time worrying about all the things that other people are doing because God has placed in front of them something different. And do not allow what you failed to do in the past keep you from doing what is in front of you today. Beloved, we've all failed. We've all failed spectacularly. doesn't matter because every single one of those failures is a window for grace and every single one of those lives is a vessel for grace and God has given you this day he's given you this day and he's given you in this day an entire assortment of good works that he prepared beforehand for you to walk in there are things that God has prepared for you to do today. And the cool thing about that is that it doesn't matter whether you're two weeks old or 90. God has something for you to do. If you're two weeks old, the list is very short. Eat, sleep, and so forth. <laughs> if you're 90, it might look about the same. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle... You have things to do that God has prepared for today. So do them. And do them with joy, knowing that God has prepared this time for you. Now, one final thing, and then we're done. His faithfulness drives this entire argument. Okay, we recognize that. I hope I've hit that note fairly clearly. It's the faithfulness of God that makes all of this work. And while... Our faithfulness does not save us. 
His faithfulness does call us to live in a reciprocal manner. His faithfulness requires reciprocity. It just calls it out on us. So the more you think about the faithfulness of God, the more you should desire to live faithfully in yourself. Do not forget that it is your duty to fulfill your calling. Okay? Now some people are going to frown at that. And they're going to say, well, if I'm doing it only out of duty, then I lose all the reward. That's not true. Being faithful to fulfill your duty is both honoring and right. So what I'm seeking to do is to give you a little encouragement to do the good things that are in front of you if you're lagging. Remember that this is your duty. Remember that God has prepared these things for you. And do not doubt His faithfulness and lag in your obedience. And one final thought. Do not bother yourself with keeping your own records of service. God will remember. God will be faithful. So if the enemy starts bringing to mind all the things that you've done that have been so unappreciated, you need to recognize that that is the enemy. You need to rebuke him, and you need to turn away from that instead of nurturing that is so often we're tempted to do. Because remember, God is magnified when you get it wrong. God is magnified when you get it right. And if you're worried about you being honored for what you did, or noticed, or appreciated, or made much of, you're trying to take what's his. And that's not a wise thing to do. Pharisee. It is. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. I pray that you would show us the mercy that you promised us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the things that are in front of us to do and give us willing hearts to do them in a way that honors you. God, I pray that any muddle or confusion or strangeness that I've introduced into this thought is removed. Because of the beautiful clarity of what you have done in calling us and preparing for us good works to praise you. I shine through. God, I ask that you would let your glory be honoring let your glory be magnifying and let your glory be the thing that we see when we look at everything. Make much of Jesus. Make much of his truth. Make much of his name. And through his name, be pleased God to save the world. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.